welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're in this series on the book of James, and who has a new love for the book of James? Anyone? I have a new love for the book of James. I mean, I knew I liked it, it's scripture, you know, but the more you dig in, the more you're like, this is a tremendously beautiful thing, and it's a tremendously practical thing. And what's amazing, guys, is the fruit that this book has had in you guys. Because, I mean, the amount of response, and it's not just, oh, that was a great sermon, or, oh, I really like how you said this, or, oh, that was funny. Uh, It's not that kind of feedback. It's like, I'm dealing with anger. Can we meet? Can we talk? You know, how can I deal with this better? Or, you know, I'm dealing with a trial, but God is getting me through because of the things that are in this book of James. And so it has amazing power, guys, in your lives. It's so great. Uh, We should be doing the last two verses of chapter one, but we're going to hold off on those last two verses. And the reason is, is because we're going to have Holly with us next week. And that passage is the, the passage, religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so she does ministry that would fit with that. So we want to spend some time while she's here hearing from her on that. We'll also have two or three other ministries that are in our body that minister to either orphans or widows. I know you're thinking like, in a church this size? Yes. So four ministries to pick from that you could get involved in that that visit orphans and widows in their distress. Super thankful for last week's message from Chad. He was in James uh, 1, 22 through 25. Awesome, helpful word, well preached, and um, that was his first time ever preaching. I mean, he's certainly taught. He's, He's a hospice chaplain, so he's done a lot of funerals, which would be kind of probably the most hard, most difficult teaching you can imagine, but so thankful for God's gifting in him. It was a real blessing. So here we are. We're in chapter two. We're just going to skip ahead to chapter two, verse one. It says this, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That Greek word there for partiality is a word that means to receive the face. It's this idea that you would see someone's face and decide by what you see on their face whether you're going to receive or reject them. That's what that word partiality means. And interestingly, it's a word that was apparently invented by the authors of the New Testament. There's no Greek record of that word before then. And um, and so it's a word, it's a very Christian word. And it's it's a sin of looking upon a person and making a determination from their appearance whether you're going to accept or reject them. Different words for this in our culture would be partiality. Some of your Bibles have partiality. Some of them have favoritism. Uh, A very common word in our culture is discrimination. And I'm going to actually use discrimination mostly because it's a word that's very commonly used in our culture and very negative. Okay? This is a sin. I want to pick the worst possible word we have in our culture to talk about it. And what it is is it's to judge people, to receive or reject them based on their appearance. Okay? Um, discrimination is a common sin both in and outside the church. In our culture, it's one that our culture is very aware of, talks about it a lot. It seems to be maybe the only sin left, right, in our culture. And then in the church, it's a common reason why churches fail to become the diverse spiritual families they're intended to be. Because we all kind of cluster up with people that are like us, with people who think like us, look like us, talk like us. And so it really interferes with our ability to be a body. And we do this, guys. We make instant determinations based on a person's appearance to either reject or receive them automatically. And every human being is tempted to do this. The example is a poor person in verse 2, right? But that word partiality in verse 1 is plural, meaning there's a bunch of ways to do this sin. 
It's not just with poor people. There's a bunch of different ways to discriminate against each other. We can discriminate. Think of some ways we can discriminate. What do you guys have? Give me some. What Clothing. Yes, and that's in this text. What else? Skin color. Skin color. You going to leave Wayne to do this whole thing all by himself? Skin color. What else? He'll just keep going if you guys want. What? Gender. Yes. Age is a huge one, right? What else? Wealth, decorative things, attractiveness, age, life stage. I think we're very common in the church. We want to be with people that are in the same life stage, and so we divide the church up that way. Um, uh, intelligence or perceived intelligence, perceived education, someone's mannerisms, someone's social skills. So let me give them to you. It's wealth, class, attractiveness, race, age. Age is a big one in our culture. Um, social skills, mannerism, education, life stage. It's basically we can discriminate against anyone that is not like us. Okay, anyone that is not like us. And so we take these snapshots, we see a person, we go, take a snapshot, and we immediately sort people as either vehicles or obstacles. That's something I get from Paul Tripp. He has this idea of like, we sort people as vehicles or obstacles. Vehicles are people that can get us where we want to go and give us the things we want. Obstacles are people that are in the way of the things we want. And so we can quickly go vehicle, obstacle, vehicle, obstacle, as we come into a gathering of people. And we do it all the time. We receive or reject people based on how they look. James gives a concrete example in verse 2. Take a look at it. If a man wears a gold ring and fine clothing and comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention, that's the key, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The context here is probably visitors coming into a church because they're being told where to sit, right? So they're probably not regulars. They come into the church. Um, this term here, your assembly, is the word synagogue. Remember, this is a very Jewish letter to a very Jewish group of Christians. And, and they're showing them where to sit, and they're discriminating. You know, and this is very easy to do. We're quick, and it's easy for us. It takes very little work. Rich man, gold ring, fine clothing, good seat. Poor man, shabby clothing. That shabby means really filthy, dirty clothing, probably looks homeless to us. Um, reject him, right? It's quick for us, right? We do this super quickly. Poor person, shabby, poor, obstacle, reject, right? Rich person, vehicle, accept, right? We do this all the time, guys. We can do it all day long, like flashcards, right? It's easy for us to do, right? We, we did it this morning, you know? As much as you hate to admit it, you did it this morning. Vehicle, obstacle, vehicle, obstacle. Looks like me, doesn't look like me. Same interest, not same interest. Too old, different life stage. Doesn't look like me, doesn't look fun, doesn't look like somebody I'd enjoy being with. And you went, accept, reject, accept, reject, accept, reject. It's easy, right? But James says that that thing we do so well is evil, he says those distinctions, those judgments that we do are evil. We are skilled, guys, at evil, okay? We are skilled at evil. Our discriminations, go, guys, are actually a little bit more refined than this. I know you guys would be like, I would never do that to a poor person. Tell them to stand over there or you sit at my feet. But we're way more refined at this, guys. It sounds like this. It doesn't sound like sit at my feet. It sounds like, I just can't connect with her. We just have nothing in common. Those aren't really my kind of people. Those aren't the kind of people I like hanging out with. Or, there's no one here that's like me. See, that sounds a little more refined. 
It's more refined because we're better at it, but we're better at something that's quite evil. Um, One of the most common things people ask when they check out a new church is, who is here that's like me? Right? That's the first question people are thinking when they come into a new church is, who here is like me? You can say, oh, those visitors are just like, but we're the same way as we greet them. We're looking like, is that person like me? That person's not like me. And we accept or reject people based on whether they're somebody like us. Guys, that's not what God has designed the church to be. That's called tribalism, right? God has designed the church to be a diverse family of natural enemies, of people that would not have in any way been friends if it weren't for Jesus. I mean, look at the book of Ephesians. Look at Jew and Gentile. God wants to bring together natural enemies. He wants to bring together people who would not have naturally come together. He's designed us not to be the same, but to be diverse. And and think about it, guys. Think about who you were seeking out when we assembled today, okay? What kind of people did you gravitate to this morning? When you entered those doors today, who did you walk right past? And it didn't take a determination. You just, you saw them, you walk right past them. Or who did you wait to talk to? There's people you'll actually wait to talk to, and there's people you'll walk right past. I actually set up a camera out there this morning, took a little video, and let's see how you guys did, okay? Go ahead and... I'm joking. Scary, though, isn't it? Scary, isn't it? You guys are like, oh, dang. Right? Guys, it's very convicting, but we really need to hear this word from James. You're like, not me. Okay, we have time to work on it. I'll do it next week. We all have this innate cultural sense that discrimination is wrong. Our culture actually tells us discrimination is a sin, which is handy. It's actually one of the few sins they believe in. Maybe that and smoking, and that's all you got, right? Our culture tells us that it's wrong, but it can't tell us why it's wrong. Why would discrimination be wrong if, if I'm the result of blind chance and time and survival of the fittest, which is what our culture would teach us? why not seek out those who I deem to be the fittest and form alliances with them and leave the less fit to themselves? If that's how we got here, why is it such a bad thing to do now? James actually tells us why it's wrong, which is really great. He gives us three solid reasons why it's wrong to discriminate, especially in our gatherings. This is very much a a message about greeting and welcoming and hospitality. And, And the three reasons, I'll start with the first one. Discrimination is sin because it contradicts contradicts divine election. Discrimination is sin because it contradicts divine election. Look at verse 5. Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor man. Discrimination is sin because it contradicts divine election. What do I mean by that? Well, James has told us that God has by and large chosen to save the poor. That interesting? That verse 5 says that God has, by and large, chosen to save the poor. And we should love the ones he loves, right? Um, the ultimate reason that every person comes to Christ is God's sovereign choice of them. We know that from James 1.18. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is saying that God often, in his election, chooses the poor, not the rich, for salvation. It might be shocking. Paul agrees, though. Take a look at 1 Corinthians one twenty six because it's about you, and you need to see this. Paul agrees with this, about God's election being for the poor. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to you guys. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. That hurts. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are noble birth. 
But God has chosen what? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And then what's his reason? Why does God choose the poor and the despised? He says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So as it is written, let those who boast, boast in the Lord. So God intentionally chooses the poor. It's not that God never chooses rich people or wise people or mighty people, but it's not his MO according to this text. He tends to choose the foolish and the weak and the despised so that no one can boast. Now, the Old Testament equivalent of 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 26 is in 1 Samuel 22, 1, and it's super funny. So David, he's on the run, and he escapes to the cave of, of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there. And then listen to the people that gather around David. This is his core group. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter of soul gathered to him, gathered to David. And he became the commander over them. And there were about 400 men. Awesome core group, huh? So his core group is everybody that's distressed, in debt, and bitter, right? God can work with that. He goes, okay, I got a bunch of distressed, in debt, bitter people. Let's get them together, and the Lord's going to work with this group, and he's going to, that's his preferred core group, guys. That's you guys. You know, according to 1 Corinthians 1.26, he chooses the weak. He chooses the weak so that his glory would be on display through them. You're not going to pick generally an all-star team because they'll say, well, you had the all-star team. Of course you, 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 you succeeded. You know, he picks the weak. God doesn't choose people that have something he needs. Okay? We do that. God doesn't choose people that have something he needs. We choose people that will meet our needs. We see people as vehicles or obstacles. Guys, God has no needs, and he needs no vehicle. Right? God looks for needs, he meets needs, but he has no needs. And God has chosen the poor and the needy. Look at verse 5 again back in James 2. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? As we gather here, guys, and as you watch people stream into this gathering, as we gather here, you're gathering with those God has chosen. They may not be the ones you would have chosen, but they're the ones God has chosen. And if God has chosen them and God loves them, then we ought to choose and love and honor them as well. And that's what this text is saying to us. Discrimination is sin because it contradicts divine election. Secondly, discrimination is sin because it gives evil a pass. Take a look at verse 6, second half. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? Discrimination is sin because it gives evil a pass. You're going to need a little bit of cultural context here. So James is Jewish, right? He's the head of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He's writing a letter to the dispersed Jewish believers throughout, and he's writing in a time of severe economic inequality and injustice, okay? There was a famine. There were all kinds of persecution. All kinds of bad things are happening to these people. And what James is saying here is that it's been mostly the rich that have done this to us, okay? And you'll notice throughout James that James actually has a very negative view of rich people, okay? And we'll dig into that in chapter 5, and it's going to be personal because that's mostly us, okay? So chapter 5 is going to be a little rough. You might want to mark your calendars. But he has a very negative view of the rich here, and that's because the rich in his context were the ones that were uh, perpetrating the injustice on poor Christians, 
And so James is saying, how can you give honor to the very people that are responsible for all the injustices we face? Right? That's what he's saying in verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, drag you into court, blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Guys, discrimination is sin because it gives evil a pass. We give a pass to our in-group. Okay? So we discriminate, reject, receive, reject, receive. The ones we receive, we give them a pass. Okay? We tend to not want to call out the sins of our in-group. Right? Right? We tend not to want to call out the sins of our in-group. Uh, we uh, we've got something we want from them. They, they have something we need, even if it's just their acceptance that we want, and so we won't confront their sin. You know, you give me what I want, your acceptance, and I won't bother you about the sin that's so obvious in your life, right? We do that, right? We give it a pass, and it's, it's a sin of dis, dis, uh, discrimination. You can't love people, guys, if you need their approval, and you might want to just think about your whole life with that. You might want to write that down. You can't love people if you need their approval, right? Because love requires calling out sin. And you won't call out the sin of somebody you need their approval. You, you can't love people if you need their approval. You're too busy loving yourself and getting what they're going to give you, their approval or whatever else it is, that you can't call it out. You might say, well, you know, I'm afraid to offend them. I wouldn't want to hurt the relationship. When really you're afraid that you'll lose their approval. You need something from them. Discrimination is sin because it gives evil a pass. Discrimination is also sin because it's a failure to love your neighbor. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. So discrimination's a sin because it's a failure to love. I told you guys in the, in the intro message of James that the book of James sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching. And we talked about how the author of James is actually the, the half-brother, the physical brother of Jesus, right? And, um, and a lot of what he says in here is like right out of the Sermon on the Mount, right out of the Gospels. It's amazing how much he sounds just like Jesus. This is a place where he sounds a lot like Jesus as well, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was asked the most important command, he did something really interesting. He took the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, which is something that, you know, everybody would say, oh yeah, that's super important. And then he tacked onto it Leviticus 19.18, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so it sounded like this. The most important command, Jesus said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he says in the second, this is Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of the Jesus Shema, right? Jesus takes this command about loving God and, and puts on it loving neighbor, and it encapsulates the entire Ten Commandments, encapsulates the whole law. He calls it here in verse 8 the royal law, meaning this is the law of King Jesus. This is the law of the kingdom. And when we discriminate against one another, we're failing to love our neighbor, and we're breaking Jesus' law. So what's the opposite? What's the opposite of discrimination? I think discriminate, opposite would be indiscriminate, right? To honor or love or receive people indiscriminately. Um, promiscuous, second definition <laughs> in the dictionary, would be, you know, to not discriminate, to promiscuously show honor to people. Instead of making ourselves judges and deciding whether people are worthy to be honored, we're called to honor and show mercy to people and accept them promiscuously indiscriminately, without judging based on factors that we can see. Jesus talked about this, right? He said, he said, when you have a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. 
lest they also invite you in return and repay you. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Relates really strongly to this passage, doesn't it? And I would just ask you, this is super convicting, I know. We're all feeling it. I'm in this with you. But, but feel it because it's important. Check your contacts app and look, scroll through the names and how many people fit the description of that passage. Or look at your calendar and the time you spend with people and think through, who have I had in my home? Are these people that can repay me? Right? Um, when you gather in the church and you think about people to seek out, are, am I seeking out people that can kind of repay me in some way with the kind of conversation I get or kind of some of the blessings that I get from talking to them? Right? Who do you have as a friend and who have you had in your house that you would never have had as a friend or had in your house if you didn't know Jesus? Super important. Because if we're just like the world, guys, and we do the whole reciprocity thing just like the world, then we're just like the world. There's nothing amazing about that. There's nothing amazing about relationships where, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? Those, uh, in the wor- the, those that the world has no use for, guys, will be celebrities in a church that truly gets the gospel, okay? When a church truly gets the gospel, the kind of people that the world despises when they come in will be celebrities. You'll have to wait in line to see them, right? That's what we're talking about here. One of the things I really loved about Covenant Grace, French Valley, when I first came, this was 2012, is we were meeting in this, like, studio. It was like a dance studio, and the one wall was all mirror. This isn't the part I liked. Um, there was a wall, one mirror on one of the walls, and so it always looked like we had twice the people. It, was, it felt really successful. And then we also felt successful because there was a ledge with trophies, dance trophies up here. And so it was like, this church has really got it. I mean, look how big, look at the trophies. You know, it was incredible. But what was really cool is there was a guy named Eli. Do you guys remember Eli? Eli was a homeless man that was a part of our church, totally a part of our church. So you're worshiping a couple people down or maybe right next to you, there's a guy that's obviously homeless. And we worked with him and he liked his lifestyle. Like that's what he wanted to do. But he came in, hands up, worshiping the Lord and all this stuff. It was so awesome. It was so awesome. I just felt like, oh man, there's something really good going on in this church that this guy would be here. And so loved, you know, greeting time, hugging him and all that. I was at Starbucks just down the road from there. And I saw him, like, hey, Eli, let me get you a sandwich. So I got him a sandwich and we were hanging out a little bit. And then this lady came up to me, she goes, I saw what you did. That was really nice what you did. And I was like, oh, Eli, he's a member of our church. And she was like confused, you know? <laughs> she was like, what's going on? It was amazing, guys. That's how we'll know when, when we've really gotten the gospel and we really receive people as Christ receives them. Those that the world has no use for, guys, would be celebrities in a church that gets the gospel. That's what changes us, guys. That's what changes our hearts is the gospel. Did you notice it in verse 1? He actually told us that the gospel that will keep us from partiality. Look at it. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality, what? As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see that as you hold the faith? He's saying that your faith in Christ, your true saving faith in the gospel, is what will keep you from acting in partiality, discriminating against people, showing favoritism. Isn't that amazing? He said it in the first verse. A discriminating heart, guys, is so out of sync with the gospel. Because the gospel, guys, is a message that rebukes discrimination. The gospel is a message of God's indiscriminate love. You know God has indiscriminate love? God actually seeks out those who the world despises. You know, doesn't our discrimination, guys, show that we really see ourselves as a little too superior? Right? When we get that feeling like, I don't want to be near that person, I don't want to get involved, I don't want to get close, 
it shows that we're just a little too superior. We're a little too rich to associate with people unlike us. But what we need to hear this morning, guys, and this should make you feel guilty, this should make you afraid, the gospel is good news for the poor. Gospel is good news for the poor. Jesus said that. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things we need to worry about, not feel guilty about, but be afraid about, is that perhaps we're too rich in spirit for the gospel. Perhaps we're too middle class in spirit. Instead of being poor in spirit, you guys know what middle class in spirit is? I can pay my own way. I don't need any handouts. I don't need people giving me things. I earned all this stuff myself. That didn't fly with God. Got to be poor in spirit, not middle class in spirit. Guys, when you look around the world, look at who's falling away from the gospel and who's flooding to the gospel. The poor are flooding the gospel, right? The West is falling away from the gospel. And God talked about this in Deuteronomy. He said of his people that they grew fat. He's talking about them being a cow, okay? They grew fat and kicked. They grew fat, stout, and sleek. And then they forsook the God who made them, and they scoffed at the rock of his salvation. I think of how much of our intellectual doubts and our problems with Christianity and, you know, kind of, you know, don't really like what it says about this moral issue or that moral issue. I wonder how much of that is you're just too rich and fat, right? Just too rich and fat. And so we kick against and we scoff at the rock of our salvation. And then look who's streaming in, guys. It's the global south. By global south, it's like equator down, right? Global south. Right? It's good news for the poor. You guys have way more authentic, authentic brothers and sisters in the global south than you have anywhere else, in Asia and Africa and South, south America, than you have in Western countries. Like this religion, if you're holding fast to the faith in Jesus Christ, it is a religion largely of the poor. It is not a religion largely of the rich. And if you are rich in here, which many of us are, and we're holding fast to Jesus, it's a total miracle. It's a total miracle. Jesus said, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. You know, but without God, all things are possible. We need to see, guys, our poverty. If we're going to truly receive Christ, we need to see our poverty because our discrimination shows that we, are, we feel too rich, guys, to, to receive those who are unlike us. In any way, not just poor people, but people that are unlike us, right? We need to see our true poverty. And you know what's cool? James helps us see our true poverty. Did you feel your true poverty when you read verse 10? Take a look at it. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've been a transgressor of the law. Here, James does us a massive favor by showing us our true poverty. Guys, that's the standard. That's God's standard of wealth and desirability. That's who God sees as rich. That's who God wants to be with. God wants to be with people that keep his law. And his law, guys, is an all-or-nothing thing. His law is an all-or-nothing thing. Sometimes we think it's like on percentages or a curve or something. It's an all-or-nothing thing. And I'll explain why. If we break it, guys, we broke it all. And if we broke it, we're transgressors. God does not grade um, law-keeping on a percentage or a curve. And thinking that way actually perpetuates us discriminating against other people. Because the more people we can have on the bottom of the curve the better for you. Like, I'm a, I'm a veterinarian. It's very competitive to get into vet school. And you didn't want to be in a class with a bunch of pre-vet and pre-med people on a curve. Because you could do really well and have a horrible grade. It was terrible. You wanted to be in a class on a curve. You had a whole bunch of people that could be below you. Right? And the religious impulse is like, if I can see at least, you know, 10 people in my life that are like bigger scumbags than me, then I'm going to feel like I'm okay with God. That's the religious impulse. 
grade on a curve. Guys, God does not grade it on a curve. He doesn't do it by percentages, right? I hear people, when you share the gospel, they say, like, well, I never killed no one. And I always want to say, like, cool. That's great. Keep doing that. But that is not what God requires. God requires a perfect keeping of his law. His law is pass-fail. You can't kind of keep God's law just like you can't be like kind of pregnant or mostly dead, right? These are all or nothing categories. The law is one unified, beautiful way to live, and you've either done it completely or you've not done it at all. That's the way God looks at it. The, the, law, the law is like, you remember Jesus' tunic? Jesus' tunic, they gambled for it. You remember why? It was one beautiful, seamless piece, and if they were to cut it up, it'd be worth nothing. That's what the law is like. The law is like this one beautiful garment, this one beautiful way to live. And if you tore it in any way, it's not worth anything. The law is one beautiful, unified picture of who God is. And if we've defaced any part of it, we've defaced it, just like a great painting or something. It's like, oh, I only colored in the middle of it. Well, it's done. Or it's like a vase, guys. You think of a whole vase, and you, it's this rare vase worth millions of dollars, and you drop it. And you go, well, I only broke the corner. You broke the whole vase. It's worthless now, right? And, and the law is not something that we can kind of come along and kind of sweep up the broken pieces and try and glue it back together like religion teaches. You either kept the whole thing or you didn't. And so it turns out there's not a whole bunch of types of people. There's two types of people. People that kept the law perfectly. Only Jesus is in there, the glorious Lord. And all the rest of us, transgressors. There's only two types of people. And transgressors, guys, are not the kind of people that can be trusted to live in God's kingdom or to be in, enter into his new creation. Guys, if we're transgressors, we're not worthy to, be, to receive God's warm smile in the world to come, or the inexpressible joy that comes with being with him. We're transgressors. And so, now, come back to James, which one are we? Are we the guy in the great clothing with the gold ring? Or are we the guy in the shabby clothing? Which one are we? We're the poor, right? We're the poor, we're the filthy. We're the ones with shabby clothing. And we're the ones that have attempted to live our lives as obstacles to God, not vehicles, right? We, we have nothing to offer to God. We're transgressors. We're, we're poor. We're filthy. We're the ones in shabby clothing. We're the ones trying to enter the assembly of God's people, and we're just not fit to be there, right? We're transgressors, you know? How can we possibly be received warmly? How can we possibly be given a seat of honor at his table? Paul tells us, let me read this to you. It's so beautiful. How can we who are poor because of our sin be right with God? He said this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful once you realize, like, okay, I'm in the transgressor category. I'm the one that's filthy. I'm the one that should be accepted. I'm the one that, when he sees my face, should say reject, right? And then you hear these beautiful words that, that Jesus was made poor, so that we might become rich. God the Son, the glorious Lord, became poor and filthy to make us rich, right? To make us rich in God. Um, Jesus became poor. Think about his life, guys. Super poor. He's born in a feeding trough in a stable. Seems like it'd be better to do it anywhere else. That's poor, okay? His parents were poor. They offered the baby dedication offering of the poor. So they just birthed the Messiah, and they give a couple pigeons. It's all they could do, right? They were poor. Jesus was a carpenter. That doesn't mean like fine woodwork like Ish does. We're talking about laborer. That word means laborer. Like he's just a day laborer, right? Poor. People say, oh, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, what? I have nowhere to lay my head. That's poor, okay? 
Um, Passover week, he's sleeping in the olive grove. That's poor, right? Um, they have um, Palm Sunday, you know, he rides in on a borrowed donkey. They have the Last Supper in a borrowed room. When he has his legal trial, he gets the injustice you can expect if you're poor like him. The soldiers steal his one possession, the clothes off his back. He dies on the cross naked. That's poor. The crucifixion, guys, was a death penalty mainly reserved for the poor. When Jesus was buried, he's buried in a borrowed tomb. That's poor, right? But the poverty that Jesus experienced wasn't just physical, it was spiritual. You, do you realize that Jesus on the cross, he took on the filthy clothes of your spiritual poverty and mine, right? Your breaking of God's law, the beautiful image of God that you were meant to maintain that you've defaced. On the cross, Jesus was rejected by God for your transgression and for mine. Jesus, the one who wore that seamless, perfect life. I love that tunic as an example of his life. It's seamless. You know, wherever you went around Jesus' life and looked around, you'd never find the dark spot. You'd never find the wrinkle. You'd never find the tear. Everywhere, he perfectly loved the Lord as God with all his heart, mind, heart, and strength, and soul. And he loved his neighbor as himself all the time. Perfectly. All the way down to the recesses of his heart. He had that seamless, perfect life. Jesus, who wore the seamless, perfect life, became as you who have torn it to pieces. Jesus was counted as a transgressor, as if he was you. He wore your rags. And that's why God let Jesus be nailed to that cross. He was numbered with the transgressors, right? He was numbered as one of us. He came out of his category and got into ours and took the payment for all our sin. And guys, if you're a Christian this morning, and only if you're a Christian, but if you're a Christian this morning, you stand before God in Jesus' perfect, radiant righteousness. His seamless life covers you. You're no longer in your shabby, filthy sin. You're holy in his sight because you are in Christ. All the way through scripture, it talks about being in Christ. That you are united with Christ such that his righteousness covers you. That you're connected with him, that you're treated as the way he deserves to be treated. That you are rich in the only way that really matters. You're rich because you have Jesus' perfect law keeping as your record. Isn't that amazing? And doesn't this show us, guys, why discrimination is so ridiculous for people that believe this message, right? It doesn't show us how discrimination against one another is so contrary to the gospel. Remember verse 1, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And, and, and that's why James says in verse 12, take a look at it. He says this, just to show us, like, you can't have the gospel and, and, and live this way. He says this, so speak and so act as those who have been judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is an echo of Jesus' words, his brother, right? Um, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Your mercy, guys, your mercy to people that are not your kind of people, your mercy to them, guys, is evidence of your true saving faith. You realize that? When you're merciful like that, that's evidence of your true saving faith. That's the theme of James, right? What's true saving faith? It's a merciful life. A Christian is a person who treasures God's mercy. I noticed when I was talking about the gospel, many of you, I could see your faces. You're physically affected by that because you treasure the gospel. You're like, oh, good. <laughs> oh, good, it's Jesus's, you know, covering. Oh, good, it's not mine. That's the way a Christian thinks, right? A religious person says, ah, I'll put that on when I need it. But a Christian goes like, oh, no, 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 give me Jesus's righteousness. I have none of my own right? We treasure mercy. And, and if there is no mercy in your life, guys, 
If you receive and reject people based on their appearance and what they look like, whether they're rich, whatever their race is, whatever their age is, or how useful they are to you, that's evidence against you. That's evidence that you don't have true saving faith. That's evidence that you don't treasure God's mercy. And that's evidence that you should not expect mercy at the judgment. He said it real clearly in verse 13. For judgment is without mercy. That's scary. Okay? Underline that. Judgment without mercy. Okay? Stand on your own rags, right? You stand there with your own righteousness to bring. Judgment is set without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Guys, but if you have experienced Christ's mercy, if you know what it's like to be clothed in Jesus' beautiful life and not your filthy rags, then you're going to treat everyone in your life as though they were clothed in Christ. You're going to do that mentally. You're going to be like, I was clothed in Christ. I'm going to treat you as if you're clothed in Christ. I don't know if you are or not, but I'm going to treat you as if you're clothed in Christ. I am going to give you the mercy I've received. You'll clothe them all with mercy, just as you've been clothed. You've been clothed with mercy for the purpose of clothing others with mercy, right? No longer judging and rejecting people based on their usefulness to you, you know, but, but clothing them with mercy as if they were Christ himself. Be a good experiment to think about, right? When you think about people in your life, you think about people like, oh, I don't know if I want to spend time with that person, you know? It's like, oh, I don't know. Well, I'm going to kind of hurry past this person or I'm, you know, whatever, right? You, you do that in your minds. There's certain people in your neighborhood and stuff like that. Thought experiment. Treat them as Christ. You've been clothed in Christ. Treat them as Christ. That's how God is relating to you. He's treating you as Christ. Jesus told us that he commonly disguises himself as the despised of the world. You know that? You heard like secret shopper? You know? You're like a retail person. Somebody comes in and like he regularly disguises himself, right? As the despised, he said this, Truly I say to you, as you did it for the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. Right? I want to say to you guys, too, that, that haven't come to trust in Christ. Maybe you're just seeing no mercy in your life, and you just know I'm a merciless person, and, and, and I need the Lord. Have you taken this gift? Have you taken the gift of Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and received forgiveness in Jesus? Because the cool thing is, guys, the amazing news, the whole reason we set this thing up, is that the Lord stands ready to forgive all of your sins now. He stands ready to do that. You say, oh, I don't know if he really wants to. He went to the cross to do it, okay? Can we show like more intensity about forgiving your sin? He went to the cross to do it. He's like, well, I don't know if he wants me. He went to the cross, right? And he will exchange your filthy rags of sin, which he wore on the cross, for his beautiful, seamless life this morning. You can receive that. You receive that from God. You can receive from God. You know, this whole thing, partiality is like receiving by the face. I look at your face, I make a decision. You can receive that when God looks at your face, he sees Christ and receives you. It's a permanent gift. Isn't that amazing? You can have that. You can have that today. There is no reason that I can imagine that you'd want to like get up, go, hey, nice sermon, get your car, drive away, and not have that. There's no guarantees that you won't stand before the Lord in the next hour, stand before him in the righteousness of Christ, in that seamless life covering you. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion. And so if you're trusting in Christ in the way I described during the next couple of songs, um, come forward to get the bread. It's gluten-free, so you don't need to worry about that. Take the bread and the cup. The bread symbolizes his broken body shed for you.
The blood symbolizes his, or the, the cup symbolizes his blood that was shed for you to wash away all your sin. It's a picture of the gospel. And as you take it, you're taking it for free, right? There's no box you put money in here. You're taking this for free, just like you receive God's mercy for free. Receive his mercy. Receive Jesus' life to cover you. Receive Jesus' life to fill you. You know, as we take the bread and the cup, we're actually kind of reenacting something that God has come to dwell within us by the Holy Spirit, and he wants to live through us. He will live through you if you're a believer. And we also come forward to be fed by him. In ways we don't understand, the Lord's Supper feeds us spiritually. The Holy Spirit makes Christ present in a special way and feeds our souls and helps us to go out and be merciful as he's merciful. Let's pray. Father, we pray, feed us. We thank you so much for the way you've generously fed us in the, in the holy food of your word. Lord, your, your word is true food. This book of James. Mmm, savory, delicious, helpful. So thankful for it, Lord. Help us not to despise it and cast it aside, Lord, but help us to want to feed on this word every day. Lord, you've so generously fed us this morning. We pray now that you'd feed us with the holy food of your Lord's Supper, food and drink. Lord, make our spiritual bones stronger for being here and taking your supper. Make our souls more steadfast. Make our hearts happier in you. We're so thankful. We're so thankful for the gospel. Lord, we stand before you as those who just so desperately need your mercy. We know that now. We know that after hearing your word. And as we worship you, we pray that we would worship you with the joy of people whose sins been erased, whose shame's been covered, and whose lives have been filled with the amazing power of your spirit. We're so thankful in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.